All right, let's take our Bibles and let's go to the book of John to start tonight. The book of John. And boy, there's a part of me that is just uh, wishing we could take John 14, 15, 16, and 17 and go through verse by verse. In fact, just pray about this. We may do that this spring after we finish this is just take this like we did the Sermon on the Mount and uh, spend some very special time there. Uh, It's amazing to me. Uh, I just hope that you share the wonder of of this, that Jesus in the few moments, uh, maybe 15 to 20 minutes, it would have taken them to walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, gave probably the most complete and deepest theological treatise on all the important things in the Bible, everything that we believe and we live and we practice is spelled out in these four chapters. I mean, people argue today, one of the biggest arguments in, in, uh, in many circles, and we've talked about this extensively here, it's, it is the... The topic of our day is how much world do we allow in the church? That is what is going on in churches today. And some are completely surrendering. They're bringing in worldly music and worldly entertainment. And, and uh, I get notices all the time that, uh, you know, we can get copyright so we can show Hollywood movies as part of our church services. Because, I mean, there's a lot of things you can learn about serving God from, um, a, believe it or not, the, the most extreme I've heard of yet is the Harry Potter approach to Sunday school. Now, how you get witchcraft and Sunday school in the same sentence without just needing special medication, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they do that, but I'll give you the simple answer. You see, if you stick with the Bible, you can't do that stuff. And so it's got to be a different God that you're worshiping. It can't be the same one. Because there's nothing good about witchcraft. The Bible is very, very clear on that. You can't merge them. And by the way, I don't think you should have uh, a journey to Mayberry Sunday school material. I mean, Andy Griffith was funny. But how many times do they joke about intoxication? And how often does Barney Fife show up dressed like a woman? I mean, these are not things that are good for Bible-believing people. We do not get our understanding of God from the world. Somebody says, do you ever watch Andy Griffith? Well, if I want to have a joke, I'll watch Andy Griffith. If I want to study the Bible, I'll study the Bible. I don't put the two together. It's kind of like Christmas time. I want to have fun with my family, but we know Jesus wasn't born at Christmas time. But if we can use it to win a few people to the Lord, get them to stop and think about the Jesus that they claim to be talking about, we're going to do that. Amen? And so 
what we have here is John chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer. We, we didn't cover this last time. Let's just touch on this, just a few verses, and hopefully uh, I won't get carried away and take our whole time tonight. But look at verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Now, Jesus was not, as we often are, a waster of time. How many of you have ever had some horrible thing that you just had to do and you didn't want to do it? What do you do? Procrastinate, right? Am I the only one that does it? No, we all do that. We, we want to push it away as far as we can. Now, was Jesus doing that here? Absolutely not. He was embracing the most important aspects of his coming suffering and death. Why do we praise God? Why do we glorify God today for what, uh, for Jesus? It's because of what he has done. Now, uh, Joseph, where are you? Okay, let's, let's go here, son. Uh, make a short trip of this. Um, but Jesus is embracing the issue. The issue is the glorification of God. Read the book of Revelation. What is going on in Revelation 4 and 5? God pulls the veil back just a little bit, gets us a peek into heaven. What is going on? Glory and honor and praise. Thou art worthy. The search is made all through the entire universe, the entire creation of God, including heaven itself, to find one who is worthy to take the book out of the hand. And there's only one that's found, my friend. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If we could get a hold of this, what church ought to be about is bringing glory to Jesus Christ and glory to God the Father. Amen? Amen. Jesus addresses that in this prayer right here. He is telling us, here is what you are to be about. And guess what's going to happen? God will have to change you so you can give him glory. Now, couldn't we just stop and preach on this all night? I mean, how many of us need this, this information in our lives? I mean, you want protection in the hour of temptation. The problem is we stop thinking about glorifying God. Why does that temptation look so good to us? Because we're thinking about ourselves. We stop thinking about bringing glory to God. Jesus didn't do that. The first thing he prays for. And by the way, it'll be the last thing he prays for in this chapter. But let's just catch one or two verses here. Um, look at verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. 
Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. There's only one thing that we ought to be about. That's this book. That's what Jesus is praying here, is it not? He said, I manifested thy name unto them. How did he do that? He just finished explaining to Philip in chapter 14 who God is, who Jesus is. And we come down here to verse uh, uh, 14. It says, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them. You know, I've got problems with the Christianity that the world likes. I got a problem with that. Because Jesus said, when I gave them my word, the world hated them. I was talking with someone just this week, and they were saying, you know, I I just don't feel really comfortable at, at your church. And I said, I don't want you to. You know, what do you mean? Well, the problem is there's some real life issues going on. You know, if you could come to our church and be comfortable, there'd be something wrong. Because God wants to change you, but if God has to change you, he's got to make you uncomfortable first. Nobody changes. No matter, I'm, I'm sorry, no matter what you think of yourself, Nobody changes just because they want to be a better person. If you don't have to change, you don't. How many of you remember that horrible teacher at school that just was never satisfied, that always kept pushing and prodding and bled all over your paper with red ink? I'll tell you what, while we were at the preacher's meeting, just one funny little story, I was responsible for the notes for the business meeting, and I'd reviewed them and sent them to the pastor in Washington State who was actually supposed to take the minutes, but he couldn't be there. And so uh, I actually found Brother Rick, Rick Williams, and I said, would you mind just looking over these one last time? I mean, he bled all over that paper. I felt like I was back in grade school. And I'm sitting there going, oh, man. And so what I do after the service was over, I went home and I retyped the whole notes. But why, why do we do that? Because we need to change. I did not feel good about retyping those notes. But you know what? I had to admit that it was not a very good job to start with, and I wanted it to be a decent job. And so that means you got to put forth the effort. Amen? And God wants to change us. His word is going to separate us, and let's keep going on here. I pray not that thou... Verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into.
to the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through thy truth. Verse 20 is one of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible to me. Here is Jesus on his way to Gethsemane. Now look at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus was praying for the Open Door Bible Baptist Church in Astoria on his way to Gethsemane. I mean, that ought to just make you, wow. Jesus knew. He was looking at the big picture. This is explaining what the writer of Hebrews said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Amen? The Bible explains the Bible here. And then we come down here to uh, um, uh, verse 24 here. It says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. I, I tell you, you, you we, we could go to any theological library. And there will be book upon book, volume upon volume, sermon collection upon sermon collection, dealing with the issues that are in these four chapters. It is a treatise on practical Christianity right here. And it explains and deals with so many things that we deal with. And Jesus uttered these words in just a few moments as he ended the Lord's Supper and they sung a hymn and they walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now John almost completely skips the Garden of Gethsemane. He just gives us a few verses here about it. And uh, we look here at verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Kedron, where, there, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. Next verse, and Judas also. Now, we have to understand, if we'll go back and pick this up in, um, in uh, the book of Matthew and, and Luke, uh, we will see that Jesus prayed for three hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three hours. And it says that he said the same words. You know, I've been with uh, many people over the years, and, and uh, I'll tell you who was the first one that told me about all-night prayer meetings was Brother Clayton. He said when he and Brother Thompson and uh, several other men were helping get the Cleveland Baptist Church started, this was back in the 1950s, he said they had all-night prayer meetings. They'd just meet at the church and they'd pray. He said, you know what? God answered everything we prayed for. Wow. 
But I've had people say, well, I'm, I'm not going to, I believe that you just pray and let God do it and you don't ask him over and over again. I always go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I say, you know what? Jesus repeated the same words for three hours. I think he was trying to help us understand something. You know, prayer is not begging God to do something. Because God already wants to do it. He's God. Prayer is a method that God has given us to get this old flesh out of the way, to force it into submission to the will of God. Let God burden your heart. There's nothing wrong with going to the Lord with tears and heavy burdens. But let me tell you something. Prepare to get rid of them. Amen? Because that's what prayer's all about. And God already wants to do what's best. Jesus knew the answer to his prayers before he prayed them, did he not? He prayed, Father, let's, let's go to Matthew 26 here and we'll spend a few moments here. Matthew 26, and let's go to verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Did not Jesus know the answer to this? He'd already told Peter in the garden, put up your sword. This is the reason I came. I'm going to fulfill the scriptures. So Jesus prayed. Luke tells us that his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. And uh, people, some people have criticized that and said, that can't possibly happen. But uh, let me tell you, um, there's been ample physical evidence that that can happen. Uh, one of the clearest examples and, and most repetitive in World War I, we had men that were in the trenches. And they would be given the command, as was uh, said, uh, to go over the top. That meant we were going out of the trench into the no man's land and trying to penetrate the German lines and push them back. And it said more than one soldier, because of the trauma and the Death that they knew they were facing would climb up that ladder and just fall back in their face covered with blood. It burst those little vessels in the skin. And the blood just literally seeped out as if it were sweat. It, it has happened. It's been documented. And that tells you the level of turmoil, if we could use that word, 
And I've heard preachers try to explain this, that Jesus was getting his physical uh, body in subjection and that uh, Jesus was praying that he wouldn't die in the garden. And, you know, I just, I just can't, I can't uh, agree with any of that stuff. I, I believe this is something that's beyond our understanding you want to uh, if you want to understand anything understand this Jesus was not looking forward to the shame and degradation of the cross that's what you ought to get out of this this was not a sunday school picnic this was not easy for him because he's god Jesus was trying to give you and I just a little glimpse into his soul the turmoil that was created in the soul of God because of our sins. I believe that's the simplest explanation of this. What was going on was so traumatic that the disciples just zoned out. That's why they went to sleep. Have you ever been somewhere where so much going on that you just couldn't even, and you just, you know, God made our bodies just to zone out at certain times. We can't remember things. We can't uh, comprehend certain things. And the disciples, they just, Lord, I can't handle whatever's going on. I know it's serious, but it's way past me. And they just literally went to sleep for three hours. Finally, Jesus comes and he wakes him up and Judas comes with the band and betrays Jesus with a kiss. Peter tries to cut off the ear. Mark tells us the story of a young man who's hiding in the bushes watching everything and they try to grab him and he runs away and all they get is the linen sheet that he's wrapped in. And uh, many people have said, I I think that was Mark. (laughs) Uh, because it may have actually been his home where the upper room was, uh, where they had this. And, and as a little boy, he would have been there watching and trying to figure out all this stuff. And when they tried to grab him, he, he just puts that story. We don't know if that's true or not. Interesting to think about. But Jesus allowed himself to be bound. I love John's rendition He said, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they fell on on the ground. Don't you think if you went to try to get somebody and he just spoke and you fell, fell flat on your face that you might want to get up and run away? Didn't work for Lot and the men of Sodom, did it? when they were smitten with blindness. You know, when you choose to be a part of sin, it's just like losing your mind. There's nothing that will stop you. That's why you have to surrender your soul to God. Amen? And so here we have Jesus being arrested. He is condemned. Now, I'm going to try not to spend too much time on this, but we have, uh, let's go back to John and just pick up this here. Jesus is taken 
before Annas. He is the father-in-law to the high priest. And um, they kind of do a pre-trial here, trying to get everything in line so that when they have the real trial, they can uh, condemn him and it can happen very quickly. Someone has gone through the Jewish tradition uh, in their legal records and things and compared it to the trial of Christ and every legal tradition in the Jewish system was broken. You could not hold the trial t- at night if, if it appeared that there were convened or, or uh, contrived witnesses here. The trial was immediately to be dismissed. Uh, There was supposed to be sent a runner throughout the city calling the man's name, asking for anyone who would come in and witness on his behalf. These were just some of the traditions that we found in the Jewish writings about things that they did for people because the idea was they did not want to condemn an innocent man. But see, the conclusion of Jesus' trial was all ready, foregone. They knew what the verdict was going to be. They just had to figure out how to put it down on paper. And so we have a process that begins maybe as early as midnight and goes the whole way through till the sun comes up the next morning. He is taken from Annas' house to Caiaphas, the high priest, Then early in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, he's before Caiaphas and the whole council. Then he gets taken before Pilate. Then he gets taken to Herod. And then he comes back to Pilate where he is condemned. Now, during this time, Jesus is going to be mocked several times. He is going to be beaten. He's going to be spit upon. One of the things that Uh, I like to liken it to is on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest, was to put his hands upon the sacrifice and he was to confess the sins of Israel. Isn't it interesting how they put their hands on the Savior? Not the same way the high priest did, they slapped him. They beat upon him. They punched him. They pulled the beard out of his face. The Roman soldiers gave him a big staff and a crown of thorns and a gorgeous robe. Then Pilate had him beaten as a punishment. Now a Roman scourging was basically a death sentence in and of itself. He was hoping that that would assuage the bloodlust of the crowd, but it didn't. And they kept crying until they finally found the key. He's a king. And if you're his friend, we're going to report you for treason to Rome, is what they were saying. When Pilate heard that, he knew he was had. What could he do? If he set Jesus free, his life would be forfeit. If he crucified Jesus, he knew that he was in trouble, but there was just no other place to go. So being the consummate politician, he let them have their way. 
But it was Roman soldiers that marched Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that as he marched out of the judgment hall, and of course the famous, uh, one of the most famous scenes in all the New Testament is when Pilate washes his hands and says, this isn't my problem, this is yours. Now, I don't know how you get anti-Semitism out of let his blood be upon us and upon our children. But you know, there's so much wickedness that is being dealt with here. Jesus is about to take upon him all the sins for the whole world. It never ceases to amaze me how people will go back to the same situation and add a whole new set of sins. You can't preach hatred of any people group because Jesus died for all. Amen? Amen. And so as we have Jesus walking up Calvary's hill, he is mocked once again by the soldiers. They then get Simon of Cyrene, that was northern Africa, and compel him to carry the cross. Jesus is offered the vinegar with the gall or the myrrh mixed into it. They said this would have a a doping effect, and Jesus, of course, refused it. He was then nailed to the cross, and all four uh, Gospels give us testimony of this. His garments are divided among the soldiers, and one of the amazing things that keeps running the whole way through this uh, narrative of Jesus' death and his resurrection is how the Scriptures were fulfilled. You see, this was not an invented set of circumstance. God was manipulating time and men to make them conform to his word. The, it's interesting, on the Day of Atonement, who offered the sacrifice? Well, the high priest did. And someone would take the sacrifice outside the city walls where the sacrifice would be consumed upon an altar of, of, of wood. Jesus was nailed to a cross outside the city wall where he died for us. I mean, the pictures are just so incredible. It just completely fulfills all of God's words. His garments were gambled for at the foot of the cross. I mean, can you imagine the callousness of the soldiers? I don't know how many of you have ever seen uh, an accident or a terrible thing where there's human blood that is spilled. Brother Clayton reminded me one of our first visits in New York City. We were over uh, right there at Fifth Avenue and the, um, the library and a young man had been run over by a bus. And he was just laying there in a crosswalk with a big pool of blood on the ground. And, I mean, it was just absolutely uh, terrible. I mean, it shook you up. I mean, it still shakes me up a little bit to think about that. And here the soldiers are. Okay, we got this guy's clothes. We got this one. Let's, let's get out the dice and shake for whoever gets the main garment. 
the callousness that went on, the ignorance, the, the unknowingness of what they were participating in. Absolutely amazing. And yet, if we make another connection, if you don't mind, they ate and they drank and they gave in marriage until the floodwaters came and washed them away. You see, people aren't paying attention. But we had better be. Amen? We had better be paying attention because we know what the Bible says. Things are going on all around us. Let's pay attention that we would not be praying against God's word. That we would be praying in response and in obedience to God's word. Jesus is going to hang on the cross for roughly six hours from about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The first three hours, he's going to pray He's going to say three things that are recorded in the four Gospels. We do not know the exact order because no one Gospel record gives us all the sayings of the cross. And so we're just put them together. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That would logically be the first thing he said. Sometime, at least according to A.T. Robertson, the the dialogue with the thief would have happened in those first three hours. And Jesus would have said, he would have said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Sometime before the darkness laid over the face of the land, Jesus saw Mary, his mother, and told John, I want you to take care of her, and she'll go to your house, and he will be your son, and you will be his mother and she, he will take care of you. Well, then the darkness came at noon. And for three more hours, Jesus hung on the cross in darkness. It was there that he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? One thing I always love to point out about this statement, it's the only time in the scriptures you'll ever find Jesus referring to God other than Father. With the one exception of resurrection, Sunday morning just flashed into my head. But he said, I thirst. It is finished. And Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. Those were all the sayings that, were, that we have recorded in different uh, of the record of the recorders here of our Gospels, give us different ones. Jesus surrendered his life. It was not the final gasp of exhaustion. The Bible says he cried out with a loud voice and died. It was his surrendering of his life at his will once all things were fulfilled. You must go back to the reason we glorify God is because of what he did to pay the price for our sins. Amen? It was what he showed us, how horrible this whole thing was, how much 
pain this brought to his heart that he would spend three hours in agony before he went to the cross and surrendered to the shame and the suffering that he would endure. When Jesus died, the Bible tells us that the veil in the temple was rent in two. The historians tell us that was a hand-woven linen veil. How many ladies know what linen is? I mean, linen is made from flax. It is incredibly strong. They say that veil was six inches thick of hand-woven linen. You could take two semi-trucks and put them together with that veil in the middle, and you'd have a problem ripping that veil. Linen is strong. Six inches thick. I mean, there's not a tow rope made that was strong as that veil was. God sent an angel to rip it in half. You know what? The, when the veil was ripped, you know what it revealed? It revealed an empty holy of holies. The ark was no longer there. It hadn't been there since the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Every year they would sprinkle the blood on a white marble slab. That was all they had. I'll tell you, writer of Hebrews says, showing, the veil showed us that the way to the holiest of all was not yet made plain. We can come directly before the God of heaven through Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something, you're going to get stopped because you're not going any further than the golden altar of prayer. You want to be close to God pray. Amen? It says there was an earthquake. It says that after his resurrection, many of the, the graves were opened and many of the saints went and appeared. And uh, I will tell you that there's just a lot we do not know. One of the great questions of eschatology, the people, that study of the end times, they, they want to go through and they, well, where is Israel resurrected? Where were the Old Testament saints resurrected? I don't know. It says many of them came out of their graves. Maybe it was right here. Uh, I've thrown that one out to a few people who really... St oh, no, no, that couldn't be. I don't know. Uh, I tend to think that that would solve a lot of problems with eschatology. But we'll just have to leave that one up to the Father. There were some people that were resurrected. They said they went into the city and appeared unto many. Uh, don't ask me to explain it. That's just what the Bible says. It says enough went on at the death of Jesus Christ that the centurion, the Roman officer in charge of the crucifixion, looked around and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You know, I kind of hope I'll see him in heaven someday. How about you? If he really believed what he said, we'll, we will see. So now we get to, let's, let's go to John chapter 19. We'll try to finish on time here tonight. John chapter 19 and verse 38. 
It says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. And they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher, was nigh at hand. Now, one of the problems that we have as we go through this week is the accounting of the days. And as I've said before, if we will just take out the time references and put the sunrises and the next mornings and those kinds of things in there, what we end up with is Jesus riding a donkey in on Sunday into Jerusalem, triumphal entry, two days teaching in the temple. Wednesday is spent getting ready for the Passover meal. The Passover meal is Wednesday night. Jesus is arrested Wednesday night. The crucifixion then happens on Thursday. He is put into the tomb Thursday afternoon. I mean, you wouldn't take 100 pounds of spices and all of these linen and wrap a human body in three minutes. Uh, you would have to spend an hour or two, and that would be with many helpers to to get this done. And being that they were rich men, they probably had servants that did most of this work. The Bible tells us that the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, watched and knew the place where Jesus was buried. Evidently, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests knew where he was buried because they had to know where to tell Pilate to send the guard. And so we have this happening here, and it says here, the day of preparation. Now, normally preparation refers to from 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the afternoon till sunset. And it's called the day of preparation. Uh, Luke tells us that it was the Sabbath that drew on. And so that's why people say Jesus had to be crucified on Friday so they could get him in the ground, uh, the grave before the regular Sabbath, Saturday Sabbath. We look it up in the, the book of Leviticus, and there were several Sabbaths. You had the actual Saturday Sabbath, the first and the last day of the Feast of Trumpets, the first and the eighth days were also Sabbaths. A Sabbath was a day when you weren't supposed to work. And so there's always the during the feast of the Passover. There were certain, you had the Passover. You were allowed to work on the Passover day because you had to get everything ready for the Passover meal. You had to cook. You had to roast the lamb before you ate the lamb. Well, the first day of unleavened bread was a Sabbath. It was a special day that you weren't supposed to work. And so, I'm not going to claim, because people have been arguing about this for nearly 2,000 years, that I have all the answers all right. But if we'll... 
just take a simple understanding, we come up with in the grave somewhere between 4 and 5.30 Thursday night. Thursday afternoon. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. There's your three nights. You have Friday uh, during the day, Saturday during the day. Then you say, where's your third day? Well, you have a few hours on uh, Thursday afternoon possibly. And also Jesus' resurrection was right about the time of the sun rising, which would be also the third day. It said he would rise on the third day. And so if we do it on Wednesday, then we got four full nights in the grave. And I've even heard preachers say, Jesus rose again Saturday night, was good Wednesday, and, and resurrection Saturday. That doesn't fulfill the, the, the Bible pictures because Jesus rose again on the first day of the week. Actually, the eighth day, if you like numbers, because eight is the number of new beginnings. And so God completed the work that he purposed in his heart that he would do before creation. First day of the week. Friday, we've been over that. Boy, that's, that's just so tight. I don't see how you do it. And so we take the events as they follow, as they lay out in Scripture, and we try to put this together so that we can understand that there is no contradiction, but as you have two, actually four different men telling this story from four different angles you're going to get some things that just might seem a little contradictory. But we know they're not because we believe first that the Bible is not a book full of contradictions. Amen. That's where we start. And so it's not a big deal to lay aside some traditions and even suspend just a little bit of our absolute critical thinking here to allow that there may have been a double Sabbath because of the way the Passover fell and the events of the feast came together and we have Jesus in the tomb for three days and three nights on the third day before the third day is completed Jesus comes out of the tomb. The Bible tells us just as the sun was rising or just before it was light how many of you have ever been outside before the sun comes up? I mean, when I was a kid, we used to go deer hunting. And if you went deer hunting, you had to get up in your stand while it was still totally dark. And then you waited. But a half an hour before the sun came up, you were actually could see enough that you could start hunting. You see, there's light before the sun comes, before you actually see the sun. And so it was sometime in that pre-dawn darkness, Jesus rose again from the dead. And the Bible tells us, we'll deal with this next time, that the angel came down and rolled the stone away. And I love to say it, say it one more time. It wasn't so Jesus could get out. 
It was so we could see in. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this night and we thank you for these events. And Lord, I pray that as we go over these things and look at just the history of what happened, the story, that you would prick our hearts. Lord, that if we ever catch ourselves growing callous like the Roman soldiers would, that, Lord, the Holy Spirit be able to remind us that we need to draw close and we need to remember Gethsemane and the anguish that was in your heart. Lord, help us remember all of the things that you prayed about on your way to Gethsemane. Lord, we ask that you would help us to remember that even though you died, it was not an issue of weakness and exhaustion. It was an issue of obedience and glory that belongs only to the Father and only to the Son. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts that we may be your servants. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish this prayer,